Hello and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name is Ed Newell and I'm the Chief Executive here at Cumberland Lodge. If this is your first time for joining us, Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of webinars where we respond to key themes emerging from our conferences and other work, as well as other pressing issues arising in society. Last time on Dialogue and Debate, we explored the politics behind language and terminology. We discussed how language changes over time and its effect on society. If this topic interests you, you can watch the webinar on demand via the Read, Watch, Listen page on our website or on SoundCloud and other major podcasting platforms. In today's webinar, we'll be exploring the question, is education the answer to social mobility? We'll be discussing with four experts how we can enable people from disadvantaged backgrounds to fulfill their potential and achieve their ambitions, especially amidst the economic and social disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm delighted to welcome Carolina Dare, Funding and Development Director of Leadership through Sport and Business, John Craven, Chief Executive of Upreach, Lee Elliott Major, Professor of Social Mobility at the University of Exeter, and Juja Mamri, Sustainability and Impact Manager at Regenerative Creations. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Throughout the webinar, we'd like to invite you, our audience, to submit questions. And to do so, you can, do, uh, you can use the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. We'll also be live tweeting, and it would be great to hear your views and questions. And you can do so this by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge and using the hashtag dialogue debate. Before uh, we go to our panel, we're going to start with a quick poll. It's election time, so let's have a quick poll uh, to hear your initial response to today's question. The poll will pop up on your screen now. And the question we're asking is this, do you think a good education is the key to increasing social mobility? Yes or no? So let's just see what our audience thinks at the beginning of this discussion. Just waiting for the results to come in. The results, 64% say yes, 11% say no, 25% are unsure. Well, maybe we will we'll find out at the end whether that changes as a result of, uh, of our discussion. So we're going to go, first of all, to, to Lee. Um, Lee, emphasis has been placed on promoting education as the key tool for social mobility. But research by John Goldthorpe and colleagues uh, at Oxford University suggest it's proved ineffective. In your view, is education key or do you agree with John that what's more important is having a vibrant job market with opportunities for career progression? So this is one of the questions that economists and sociologists actually agree on in terms of social mobility. There's lots of debates around, you know, levels of social mobility, how low it is, whether it's declined. But on this issue, uh, we have consensus. And, and the books that I've produced uh, with some colleagues from economists uh, have the same sort of conclusions that John Goldthorpe and the Oxford sociologists have. And that is that education can only do so much to 
if you like, be the great social leveller. And the reason for that is that so much happens outside the school gates in terms of both uh, inequality, uh, the, the, the gaps in, in, in just opportunities and resources that people experience. And I think we underestimate the extent of that actually in this country. Anyone who's serious about social mobility has to tackle the profound inequalities outside the uh, school gates. Um, so it, it's about the, the sort of, I've called it the educational arms race outside the school gates, where you see, for example, the boom in private tutoring over the last couple of decades, which is fueled mainly by middle class parents doing extra for their children. I do this, by the way, I'm not I'm not sort of, you know, um, this, this is something that you, you can't stop in a way. But the problem is, is that schools can only do so much to, if you like, counterbalance that. So all the evidence from around the world shows that education obviously is very important. I would, I would class myself as an educationalist, so I would say that. But I think if you're serious about social mobility, you have to tackle both inequalities within the classroom or the lecture hall, if you like, uh, as well as the workplace. Um, and I'll just finish on, I think we, if we, we spend far too much time pressurising education, and indeed teachers, we put a lot on their shoulders in terms of solving society's ills. And we, in my view, don't spend enough time looking at the workplace and the profound inequalities we've seen with the growth of the gig economy, for example, or the exclusive access to things like internships in the elite professions. I think we should spend as much time on that as we do uh, on education. So, so both education and, and workplace matters. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Lee. And actually that tees up very nicely the question I'm going to ask uh, Zhuja, which is, do you believe that the UK education system functions effectively as a meritocracy? And do you think we've made progress in recent years to allow people from all backgrounds to be rewarded for their efforts to succeed? I think, firstly, we have to understand what do we mean by meritocracy? And if it's this idea that we are valuing people um, and people achieve success based on their own talent um, and merit, I think we also have to realize that our understanding of merit is also guided by certain structural inequalities. And it's quite a rigid understanding that privileges certain educational and professional experiences that are still inaccessible to many. So going to top universities or working in certain professions. And so merit in itself, I don't think is necessarily a level playing field, but rather a product of your circumstance. And then I think the question around being rewarded, again, like really unpacking what success looks like. And there's so much focus on entry to education and to the workplace. Um, but I think there's less focus on what retention looks like and what it means to build inclusive, truly inclusive educational spaces and workplaces. And I think that leads to this sort of poor translation from education to the workplace that still relies so much on not what you know, but who you know. And so the statistics around, if you have a parent who's a doctor, you're still 24, more, 24 times more likely to become a doctor. Or if you have a parent who's a lawyer, you're 17 times more likely to become a lawyer. So there's this really missing part of the conversation around social capital and access to networks and resources that can't necessarily be as tangibly solved by a simple fix of like sending more people to education. And then also just to add 
to the end of that about what success looks like. I think we still measure it in terms of achievement within very particular fields. And for me, social mobility is about access to opportunity. I think we see it as quite a linear path when actually you don't have to go down that path to have social mobility. It's about having access to opportunity and informed choice. So even if you don't necessarily make the choice to pursue higher education or certain professions, that isn't a comment on your ability to be socially mobile. Thank you very much indeed. And that also links in very nicely to the question I'm gonna ask John, um, because I'm thinking about informed choices and perhaps with fewer job, fewer job opportunities coming as a result of COVID, do you envisage that more young people may, may want to pursue higher education rather than going straight into work? And if so, do you think that's a, a good thing? And do you think more people might return to education, academic research as a, job, as a result of a, of a shrinking job market as well? So we um, did a survey of the students that we support um, back in March and again in September to see what, um, what they're thinking at the moment. And we're seeing exactly that with undergraduates that we support now. So it happened in previous downturns. People chose to do postgraduate courses um, or as you say, stayed in education um, because there were just fewer uh, graduate opportunities available to them. Um, and many consider these postgraduate courses as a pathway to the job or the career that they want. Um, however, others, especially those from poorer households are put off by the cost and have fewer options. Um, alternately, many of those will tend to accept less suitable and lower paid jobs instead. And we think that where labor market choices are limited by socioeconomic background, social mobility will certainly suffer. Um, there is some evidence that those with postgraduate degrees have got higher earnings, but it's not clear to us that it is an optimal choice for 2020 or 2021 graduates. Um, there is evidence that those who graduated at the height of the financial crisis, and um, so it's a comparable period in terms of uh, the graduate labour market, um, suffered in the long term. So delaying entering the jobs market until more opportunities are available can seem rational at present. But most graduate employers do not really prioritise those with postgraduate degrees over those without. So it can be quite hard to get a return on what is a very significant financial investment. And um, we tend to advise students to choose um, their postgraduate course carefully and um, to make sure that it's helping them to develop the, the um, skills and the knowledge that employees are looking for. And also to ensure they're focused on gaining work experience, building their networks and developing employability skills that employers look for too. Thank you very much indeed. Um, moving on to, to Caroline, um, if we enable to, people to move up the social ladder, um, by definition, others must move down. Do you think this is the elephant in the room when it comes to promoting social mobility, that upwards mobility for some involves downward mobility for others? I think it's uh, certainly a fear um, amongst many people who um, really see that, that perhaps their privilege um, uh, really that that um, they feel threatened by the fact that uh, young people might be coming in or other people might be coming in to um, the workplace um, from a different background. I think I'd like to pick up on uh, Juja and, and what she was saying about access to opportunity. It is so absolutely vital that we um, open up opportunity to talent and talent um, comes in many different forms. And I feel that um, Although there may well be uh, some threat of 
moving down. It is really about opening up access, opening up choice. And our experience is that uh, we, work, we work with a number of employers who are very, very um, proactive in the space. And since COVID, it's become even more important. So for example, we have just been uh, working with NatWest who open up lots of opportunities to people from all backgrounds. But what they recognized was that young people from social, um, from, from disadvantaged backgrounds actually needed to have um, a proactive approach. So they ring-fenced a program for social mobility that enabled 60 young people to start this year and another 190 young people in the next two years to join them with less academic qualifications from backgrounds where um, they wouldn't normally have perhaps seen themselves in that organization. And what we have done is to prepare them and then support them. And I think that's another a key point that Juju was making is it's not just about access, it's actually about supporting people from disadvantaged backgrounds so that they can progress. And I think um, I mean, Sam Friedman talked very much about the sort of what following wind of privilege and that people from affluent backgrounds don't really see how their background and structure is built for them. And, um, and people talk about luck, but actually it's very much a structural thing. So I guess, Yes, it is the elephant in the room, but I actually think that we as a nation, as an economy, as um, a society need to open up opportunity and we need to provide informed, informed um, uh, we need young people to be informed about the opportunities and we need them to have the confidence and the support to actually um, maximize and, and flourish once they're in that opportunity. Um, so I think Yes, there may be some movement down, but I actually think that with Brexit, with, with all the things that are going on right now, um, there, is, there is absolute need to have more, more diversity in our businesses. We know it makes business more successful and it's really, really essential that we um, have, a, that there isn't a meritocracy. So it's very, very important that we have these proactive um, programs such as the one that NatWest is doing to make sure that all young people from all backgrounds can access and be supported into careers. Thank you very much. And talk, obviously talking there about moving into the world of work, I just wanted to move back slightly into the, uh, into the education uh, stream, as it were. And Lee, I wonder whether you might just pick up on, a, on the issue about this tension between upward and downward mobility and the threats that people face, because I think you've written a lot about about how, and you've already said it earlier on, about how people try to circumnavigate the uh, the problems of, uh, uh, or, or try to try to do their best for their kids, basically. And perhaps you could just say a little bit more about that and the and the, and the things that you've observed happening in society about uh, how people try to to, to help their children uh, uh, to be mobile. Yeah, I don't want to depress you all more this morning, depending on your voting sort of preferences and the the, the imminent uh, lockdown we're facing and the dark nights coming through but I but I, unfortunately both the sociologists and economists on this we, we, we're predicting a pretty gloomy future for social mobility and that's because when you look at absolute social mobility so this is really you know the likelihood of doing better than your parents in absolute terms we're entering into a new era, which is the first era where we 
we have young people uh, who I'm most concerned about in many ways, the under 25s in the, in the COVID uh, pandemic, because the education and employment inequalities that we're observing there. But this group of young people uh, are looking like they're going to have lower uh, prospects, if you like, than their parents had. And that's unprecedented since, certainly since the end of the Second World War. Now, what that means is that more people will be experiencing downward mobility. It's it's just the way the maths works works out. That's partly because, uh, I don't know if the other, other panellists would, would be in the same bracket as me, but I'm part of the social mobility story of previous uh, cohorts. And the problem is that few of us have climbed the social ladder. There's no more room at the top, on the top rungs, and that's and that's a real issue, I think. Um, so, and we're seeing the economy struggle at the moment. So, so, so yes, I think we're all going to be experiencing downward uh, mobility more. Um, the, the only caveat I'd say to that, Ed, is, and, and I think a few of the fellow panelists have sort of hinted at this already. It all comes down to what you what you define as success in life, and I think this always is a yeah, the things that are underneath all the debates on social mobility for me are, are what is success and what is fair. These, these are the sort of debates that we, we tend to have beneath, beneath them. And when, when we think about success, you know, I think we have to be a bit careful that we don't define success necessarily as earning more money, um, going into a higher social class bracket. Uh, because the feedback I get a lot when I give my lectures across the country is, look, Lee, I don't particularly want a high power job I want a decent life I want a I want a decent job um and, and actually I you know there's many examples of people that would would be classified as downwardly mobile in in, in our academic studies but actually who are much happier than mm -hmm. some of the climbers and I would classify myself as one is the awkward climbers who, who who have left the place they began and don't quite know where they've ended up so so I think that this kind of that there's an interesting debate about what we mean by success and I think just finally coming back to the younger generations who I worry about because of declining absolute sociability I think they're challenging some of the assumptions about what success in life is in in, in a more profound way than the older generations I think there's really interesting debates about what a successful life is but anyway i'm getting too big picture profound here but i'll, I'll stop there but i think it's a really important big picture question because i guess a lot of people if, you, if there's people feel pressure to to achieve in certain directions and then actually when they get into those positions they, they maybe feel completely out of place get imposter syndrome not actually feel that they've they've got the flourishing and fulfillment that they've they hoped for initially so i do think it's a it's a really really big question just before, I, we've got a question in from one of the audience, but before we go there, I just wanted to ask any of the panellists, is there anything that you've heard from your fellow panellists that you wanted to pick up on? I, um, I'd actually like to hear the opinions of the fellow panellists um, on this, which is, Lee, when you're talking about how we're about to enter in a, into a very scary time, especially for people under the age of 25, and trying to find some of the silver linings and what's going on in the world at the moment. And one of those being this sort of unprecedented shift to digital engagement, whether that's in education or in the workplace. Um, and obviously there are still ways in which access to technology is um, not available for, for a lot of people. But a lot of conversations I've been having with people is about how we can really use this moment in time to address the issue of geographical inequality. 
um, when it comes to social mobility. A lot of the conversations around social mobility end up being quite South centric and looking towards London as a hub for where you can be socially mobile. And I was just wondering um, in your work, um, Caroline Lee and John, whether you're seeing this digital moment as an opportunity to, to tackle some of that geographical diversity and social mobility. Uh, can I answer that? Please do. Yes. Thank you, Julia. Um, yes, I see um, the digital opportunity as, as, a, as a fantastic uh, change geographically. We, we, there's a big difference between um, disadvantage in London and disadvantage outside of London and the Southeast. So we can see that young people that we help in Liverpool, for example, or Manchester um, or Birmingham um, have very, very different and, and more barriers to, to access um, education and also um, great careers or, or, you know, to progress into apprenticeships. Um, but what is interesting is that since COVID, um, we've been able to actually put those young people into work ex virtual work experiences with organizations like Duff and Phelps, with Lloyds Bank just this week. So because they've been able to um, access that opportunity digitally, they now have the same the same experience or the same opportunity as a young person in London. And I think that that is just the tip of the iceberg. I think there's real, real chances here for us to look at um, really addressing some of the geographic um, inequality. And, and I know the young people themselves have so impressed the organizations that have actually hosted these events. And as what the, just anecdotal, but one young person in Birmingham who was was in our um, 2019 intake and didn't get a role because of COVID, he's actually now been hired by Duff and Phelps for their Birmingham office as a result of being on that um, work experience, which previously would not have been available to anybody outside of London. So I think I think there's real opportunity here, and that's just a, a little example. Anyone else would like to pick up? Thank you, Ed. Um, so I, I guess from an approach perspective, we saw pre-COVID uh, the, the sorts of geographic barriers that Caroline alludes to. So yeah, we support students from all over the, the country and we run events in collaboration with lots of different employers and um, typically at their premises. And one of the big barriers was people being scared or not wanting to come to London. They might have never been on the tube before. And while we would run regional events, um, it might take two or three hours to travel each way to. And um, it was a significant barrier that prevented people from gaining that first experience. And um, when they went for the first time, great, but actually getting them engaged that first time could be very challenging. Post COVID, um, we run those events online. We've run perhaps 40 or 50 different employer events since March using Zoom. And we've had record engagement in them because students can dial in for two hours. And um, those barriers are not there. Um, there are other barriers about access to technology, access to bandwidth, and those need tackling. Um, and we've seen that with the surveys we've done as students too. Um, but it's not a perfect solution. And um, one of the benefits of running something in person is that ability to network, the ability to talk to people about their careers and to build relationships. And it's much, much harder to do that online. And those from more advantaged backgrounds have got deeper professional networks to rely on. Um, and my fear is not just about exam results and about um, you know, the widening of the attainment gap and all of the well-founded fears that are, are going to happen at schools, but also that networks will become increasingly important at a time when jobs are, are, are scarce. 
Um, and those from the most disadvantaged backgrounds yeah, will suffer from that as well. Thank you. Anyone want to pick up on, on what John's just said? Just to add to that, Ed, um, it's a good, really good question, Juju, about, about the geographical divide in this country, because, you know, I would argue that it's not who you're, just who you're born to, but it's where you're, you're born in this country that has a profound impact on your prospects. And you're absolutely right, we're far too London-centric, and I speak as a, a Londoner. Um, so, but I, I guess I would just echo what John was saying there that I, I think you have to be careful with the digital. I, I think there are some real opportunities with di digital, it, uh, but there is a really stark digital divide again that I think we need to address. My view is that it should be a blended future, if you like, because yes, you can enable uh, people to access opportunities through online delivery, but nothing beats face-to-face -face interaction. That's what the evidence suggests. So, so I think there are opportunities, but I just wouldn't want a situation where you have the poor that are essentially on, online, you know, getting their education online or whatever it is, and the wealthy being able to uh, enjoy all the, all the benefits of face-to-face, -face. but that would be my only worry. Thank you. We have a question that's come in uh, from Alexandra Sufit, who um, says she'd be interested to hear about views about intersectionality, how race or gender cuts across social mobility, and how do you think we should tackle these issues? So uh, open it up for any panelist to kick off with that one. Intersectionality. I'll just have a very quick and then I'll let the other panelists come in on this because we did look at this in our book, um, the latest social mobility book, which is available on all good online bookstores. Oh, yeah. um, but, but one of the things that uh, was really frustrating, I have to say, with our review of the research was there isn't as much research done on ethnicity, gender, uh, as there should be actually in the social mobility literature, which I think in itself is a, an issue. So we have limited evidence, but but what I would suggest that, that, that it does point to is that there is, if you like, double disadvantage. So if you're from a poor background and you also happen to be female or you also happen to be from an ethnic minority background, and it is complex because it, it depends which specific groups we're talking about. So there's lots of nuances in this, but generally I would say that it, it, it sort of, it, 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 it adds to your disadvantage in many ways. So for example, when you look at earnings for uh, females who are socially mobile, they're, they're still less likely to earn as much as males who are also socially mobile. So there seems to be an extra uh, disadvantage. Sorry, I'm very um, depressing, aren't I? I I'll try and be more positive towards the end of this debate. But anyway, I'll hand over to the other panelists. Anyone else like to, to come in on this one? And we have um, direct experience of this with many of our young women um, from ethnic, different ethnic backgrounds, um, where they are very much um, a part of the caring and uh, support system within their families, often living in multi-generational households. And I think that that puts an enormous pressure on um, young women, particularly. Some young men are also in this category, so it's not just about women. but it does mean that they have um, a lot more to cope with at the starts of their careers. And that's something that we really embed within our, our um, support system. And we do a lot of training with our employers to create inclusive environments, but also to have an understanding 
of the experience of, of these young people and what the pressures are so that they can be accommodated um, in that, those early stages of their career. Thank you. If I may, very quickly, please do. I think, please just do. to maybe add a, a slightly positive note, if I can, which is that I think yeah, a growing number of employers are being a lot more sophisticated in their approach to diversity and understanding um, a bit about the intersectionality uh, between uh, socioeconomic background and, and ethnicity. Um, yeah, there are many that obviously um, aren't quite so far on that journey. But um, yeah, if I was to wind the clock back five years ago when I, I first became CEO of Upreach, I don't think it was well understood. And actually, um, they looked at BAME candidates as a single group rather than trying to understand that within BAME, there'll be some subgroups that are very underrepresented indeed and others that um, maybe are less underrepresented and that you shouldn't just look at BAME as, as one group. And there are also, um, I think this is less the case now, but uh, there was a focus on BAME without really thinking about socioeconomic status. So they would end up hiring um, BAME candidates from private schools or from uh, affluent families um, because they had the polish that they were looking for in their other graduates. Um, so they thought they were maybe getting diversity by one definition, but without getting it by, by many other definitions. But I, I really think employers are a lot more sophisticated in how they're looking at this now. Um, yeah, looking at, at different subgroups, not thinking about BAME as one group. And also um, yeah, even focusing on white working class, um, particularly white working class males who previously haven't benefited from any diversity initiative um, at most employers and yet are the worst performing subgroup in many um, categories in terms of things like access to university and, and the progression. And so I think, yeah, on a positive note, I, I do think employers are, are understanding these issues far more than they were many years ago. Thank you very much. We've got another question that's come in from Lydia Keat. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Um, and Lydia says, the evidence is that children living in poverty are disadvantaged from a very early age. If we're seeking to improve opportunities, uh, society should focus to improve social mobility to be address to be address the issue. Oh, sorry, this is doesn't quite scan properly, but it's about essentially about uh, child poverty, and should we be focusing on child poverty issues um, to to you know, dealing with very very young children um, t t first of all? Anyone like to pick up on that one? How young should we be starting? I guess yeah, the, I, I can respond. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it comes back to my points on you've got to address inequality as well as social mobility, in my view. I think they're two sides of the same coin. Um, I do think, by the way, it's not just about solving inequality because I, I think there are really big issues around diversity at the top of society. So I think we have to address both, I would argue, social mobility in its broadest sense and, and inequality. I don't think these are, are either or debates. I think you have to do both. Uh, yes, I think we had a great early years system in this country 20 years ago. It was lauded around the world, actually, the, the, the Shore Start centres. Um, we've lost that. I, I think that's a, that's a real pity. Uh, but, you know, it's not just early years. I think you, you, what, what the evidence shows is if you don't continue that support throughout the schooling system and in the workplace, you know, it has to be a life course uh, approach, in my view. I, I think you have to help people throughout their lives if you're going to uh, make a real difference. But certainly I agree that you, you have to address the issues around 
uh, inequality in the early years. One last thing I'd say, you know, the, the Marcus Rashford campaign, which I've been very supportive of, um, you know, for me, it's really interesting that, because for me, it highlights, you know, what, what Marcus Rashford has is authenticity, because he has experienced, uh, you know, being on free school meals, and, and, and in many ways has, um, in my view, challenged some of our, our political leaders who don't seem to have um, empathy for some of the issues in terms of the poverty that many of our children are experiencing in this country. Um, but I'll hand over to the other panellists on, on that note. Anyone else like to come in? It's, it's not directly related to the issue of child poverty, but to pick up on the, the theme of lived experience, I think that there is a growing interest in, in what does lived experience mean and what does that look like translated into the workplace. So I work a lot in, in the nonprofit and third sector and what does it mean to hire people into certain roles who have lived experience with the issue that they're trying to tackle. And I think reframing someone's background or experience as something that is not just a, you know, a checkbox exercise on a diversity form, but actually can contribute to more effective and positive change when it comes to issues like free school meals or, or various different issues is really important. And so I think to, to put more focus on what lived experience is and what it means and what, it, and what value it can bring in certain positions is really important. Thank you. Anyone else want to respond to Lydia's question? In which case, we'll move on. We have another question here from Sally Moss, who says, do parental aspirations or the lack of them and cultural restrictions from different sections of the population feed into social mobility? Anyone like to talk about parental aspirations? I've got a feeling it might be coming towards Lee again on this one. But uh... I'm sorry, I, did, I didn't want to uh, go first every time, but um, uh, see, this is being from a work class background, you're always um, nervous about being assertive. But anyway, we could, that's another debate <laughs> we could have. Um, aspirations, I'll be very interested in what the other panelists think on this, because my view is, is actually that, 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 um, that most parents do have aspirations. Um, and it's it's more of an issue of how you what, what how you translate those into practical ways of enabling your your sons or daughters to get on in life. I think it's I, I I've looked at the evidence on this. I challenge the notion that parents have lack of aspirations, and when I what I mean by that is for their children to do well. What I would argue is that we have an education system that is very narrow narrowly conceived in terms of what merit was. What, what, what was spoken about earlier yeah we have we we think of merit as uh, and we in a sense we've created a system that the middle classes are um uh, bound to win and that is um judging uh, merit on a very narrow academic uh, notion of success so so in many ways i think i would argue that many working class families in a sense are rejecting the education system because it doesn't offer vocational or creative roots um, so I would argue they have aspirations, but they might not agree with the model that the middle classes have offered, which they're almost destined to lose. I'm getting a bit conspiratorial conspirat there, but but yeah, that's what I would I would argue. Thank I you. Anyone else? Yeah, I just jump in to add. I think there's a little bit of a danger around equating 
parental lack of parental aspirations with cultural restrictions and I think this goes back to the conversation about intersectionality and how we're looking at social mobility or people from low socioeconomic backgrounds is not a homogeneous group and, and the different other identities or experiences that feed into that and I think when it comes to to certain ethnic categories or or cultural categories we do a lot of a lot of work that ends up with huge stereotypes um around these around particular communities and parental aspirations or restrictions and I think what it does is it allows for us to put blame so to speak on individuals and communities rather than looking at the system at large and the structures that allow for inequality and lack of access to opportunity to breed and so I would just say there's a little hesitancy for me around having conversations about cultural restrictions especially as Lee mentioned the data on intersectionality and different backgrounds when it comes to social mobility is actually quite sparse and so it's sort of talking to an issue that we don't have um, comprehensive data sets on. Thank you. If I may, um, please do, Lee, um, in what he was saying about parental aspirations. So I, I used to teach in a variety of different, different schools, including in special measures in some of the most deprived uh, parts of the country. And I never met parents who didn't have high aspirations for their uh, children, you know, parents' evenings and, and, and so on. I, I think it's a myth that aspirations aren't, um, aren't there. I, I do think that um, particularly outside of London, um, there is an unawareness of the opportunities that are out there um, and therefore what do, what do high aspirations look like? Um, one example is there's been a focus on getting people to go to university rather than a focus on the importance of university choice and perhaps subject choice. Um, and that ne isn't necessarily going to lead to the best outcomes for those young people who think that the decision to go to university is more important than perhaps the choice of course and, and university they go to. Um, I think you're having taught, um, as I say, in, in some of these schools, many, many children don't get out beyond their limited networks and beyond their local town into the nearest city or even in, you know, into London. And they don't know what opportunities are out there career-wise. And there can be a focus at school on getting exam results and on getting into university, but there's no focus on what that leads to. Um, we've just um, sent our second career guide called Aspire to two and a half thousand state schools. We produce all these videos to try and boost aspirations and increase information availability to, to, to try to yeah, broaden those horizons so that people know what is out there and what they're ultimately aiming for. Because I don't think the current system is geared towards careers. It's geared towards exam results and university choice. Thank you. I'm going to got another question which I'm going to address first of all uh, to Caroline because I think um, it'd be interested to get her perspective on this. It's from Elizabeth Polding and Elizabeth's asked, do the panel uh, think that degree and higher apprenticeships which combine study and workplace learning are likely to enhance social mobility in the long term? Um, yes, and I just pick up on uh, the previous um, question as well, because it ties in, I think our experience, and we work a lot with young people and their parents, is that those parents do have aspirations. And in fact, that leads in very nicely to degree apprenticeships. Um, within the, um, the apprenticeships that we've just uh, 
placed young people in this year with NatWest, for example, of the 60, 20 R degree apprenticeships. And they're in digital and technology and user experience apprenticeships. They're four-year degrees. They're being paid um, a, you know, a, a very, very good living wage. And the parents are absolutely um, gobsmacked, delighted, um, just can't believe the opportunity these young people are being given, that their education is being paid for, that they're not going to be in debt, that they're earning more than some of the, the combined members of many of their families. So this is a, a very, very important thing. And I think it is going to become more and more important for social mobility because not all young people feel that they can go to a good university. And when I say a good university, a university that is actually going to make a difference to them. Many of them have siblings who have been to university who come out at the end no more employable. They are still working on checkouts. They're still working in hospitality and retail. And not to say there's anything wrong with those roles, but that's not what that young person's aspirations were when they went to university. And importantly, and I think John picked up on this, um, they don't have the networks. Even though they've been to university for three years, they don't have the networks. What happens when they do um, a degree apprenticeship is that they are building networks from day one. And in fact, we, we help them build networks even before they go into their, their apprenticeship. But once they're in their apprenticeship, um, we support them for a 12 month period at least so that they constantly are having those networks uh, sort of expanded. So yes, I think it's, they are going to be absolutely vital. But I also think level four apprenticeships, which can then lead into a, a degree apprenticeships um, are a great place for a lot of young people who come out of, straight out of school or perhaps drop out of university because we get at least, you know, every year, uh, 20 to 30% of our applicants are people who have actually gone to university and not been able to sustain it. Um, and that's usually not academically, that's because they can't sustain being away from home or they can't sustain the, the um, economic um, issues that, that they have to face. So yes, a very renowning yes. I think they're going to play a very, very important part. But I think employers really have to get behind that as well. Mm. And I'm not saying that they should do that instead of graduate programs. I think it's as well as. So I think it's having young people come in, in, in you know, from university and also from school. Thank you, Karen. Anyone else like to comment on that one? Yeah, I guess just to pick up on the point around networks, and I think they're so important and, and recognizing the value of social capital. And there's sort of this misunderstanding that once you get to university or you have access to, to one of the top universities, that suddenly you have access to this network, right? Whether it's your peers or the alumni, but actually I think universities are just replicating societal inequalities on campus and I we've seen a lot of conversation around this in the last week around accents and what it means to to come from certain parts of the UK and, and go to certain universities and how you can be discriminated against um, and so I think if if we can focus more on how to give people not just access to universities but also the workplace but also social capital that's really important I guess just like a personal anecdote um, my my first summer after my first year at university, which was arguably one of the top universities in the US, if not the world, I was definitely on a high of, of being in that space for a year and had these expectations that I would go home, I'd secure a great internship, it would be amazing, I'd be progressing my career, but also um, earning some money. 
And I remember spending six weeks job hunting. And in the end, I could only get a job at Sports Direct. And it was a very, it was a very humbling experience for me and definitely something that taught me a lot. But it just also reminded me of while my peers were having internships at Goldman Sachs or the BBC or various different well-known institutions because they had family friends or um, family members who worked there and who could help them out as someone who didn't necessarily have access to that social capital. It was sort of like a, a very uh, harsh juxtaposition. And I think if we can look at ways to tackle that issue, we can also make social mobility more sustainable beyond just entry to education. Yeah, just to add to that, Ed, I think these are really good comments. Um, I think we need more efforts on university campuses to make them genuine, genuinely inclusive, integrated communities. Because again, the research suggests that, as Juju is saying, that the people from different backgrounds tend to stay in their own groups. I mean, it, it, it's far less integrated than you would imagine. Um, and and so I think we need to think about that. I think it's not just about access, but success, as everyone says. But I, I think what you know what we mean on that case. The other thing on on degree apprenticeships, totally agree with Caroline on that. Um, I think degree apprenticeships are important because they give status to that uh, route. And and one that one of the big flaws of all the reforms that have tried to improve the vocational offering. Um, have suffered from lack of status so you don't get as much demand particularly for the lower level uh, apprenticeship sort of qualification so any way we can we can give status to that route I think would be really key to its its future success thank can you I very much add, um, there yes, is a really you. important point there as well and that is I, I totally agree um, on, uh, with Lee on the status but it's also what they're paid we don't work with any employers that pay the apprenticeship wage because the apprenticeship wage it can only be afforded by people who are being supported by probably middle-class families. So it, it's really, really essential that we give status, but we also pay um, a, a proper living wage to young people. Thank you, that's an important point. We've got a very philosophical question that's come in here, which I might take us off into a different direction. And, and it's from uh, Mert uh, uh, Karabakak, who says, is social mobility about competitiveness? There we go. Very quick one again. I'll be very quick so other panelists can talk about it because it's, it's a passion of mine. It's, you know, so in the book, we talk about the individualistic nature of some of the debates uh, around social mobility. So the, the predominant narrative tends to be plucking some individual out of the community that some that they leave behind, that, that, that by implicit, implicit assumption is that they're all losers, that they're left behind, mm -hmm. and that they go off to do, I know, I, I'm stereotyping here, of course, but to, to work in some law firm in London and, and earn lots of money. And it's a very sort of American dream type notion of social mobility. Now, I'm, I'm passionately believe that there's a more collective sense of, of social mobility that, 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 you know, it's about giving back uh, to people. And again, I, I, I hinted at it earlier, but I think a lot of the younger generation are much more interested in collective notions of success. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I do, I do worry about that sort of, uh, in my view, flawed notion that it's just about plucking a very few individuals. Um, 
what we need to tackle is the profound issues that are affecting all those communities uh, uh, around the country. Of course, that is difficult and takes a long time. But yeah, but but there is an individualistic uh, sense that I think that does predominate in some of these debates. Mm. Thank you. Anyone else want to come in on that one? I guess just like quite simply, it's also about how you're measuring social mobility, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier and whether it's absolute social mobility that we're concerned with or relative social mobility. Um, and I, I guess with one rather than the other competitive competitiveness or this sense that it's um, as some people move up, other people move down comes into play a little bit more. Um, yeah. Thank you. We've got another question that's come in from lots of, lots of generating lots of questions this, this week, which is fantastic. From uh, Laura McGuinness has asked, as someone who, who grew up in Kent with the grammar school slash comprehensive school system, I would be interested to know what the panel thinks of this system. Does this selection system underpin the social structures that facilitate inequality? There um, we are. Maybe I might go for that one. In, in very, very briefly, just to sort of say that wherever I see selection in the school system, whether that's by a grammar school system, whether it's um, through selection by house prices um, or indeed by ability to pay with private schools, it tends to favor the selected. Um, so those who, and even within a school where you have uh, your top math set, for example, um, if you take away the higher performing students, you're removing role models um, and you're removing that ability to learn from others and you're capping other people's performance potentially. So I, very simplistically, when you have more selection, you favor the selected. Anyone else want to come in on this one? I can't resist. Um, Go yeah, for I, it. Think, I think selection blights the education system, not just in terms of grammar, schools but but actually selection within all schools you know I, the evidence and other projects i'm involved in will look at evidence of what what is best teaching and learning very good and, and john will know that like this from his background but you know brilliant teachers can work with mixed ability groups um and that by the way that works in maths as well as english i, I i'm so frustrated when i go to secondary schools when, I, when my children were younger and they, they'd say oh yes we set in maths and i say okay what is the reason for that and there isn't really it's just the way it's always been done so any way in which you select uh causes in my view um selection by social background and i and i think that's bad for education but i think it's also bad for society so i'm i'm yeah i've got quite strong views on that as you'd expect okay well should we throw another one into the mix to get get re people really going which is um about private schools private education um and the state system i mean are, is that is that a big issue with social mobility Anyone, Lee, you probably, uh, you're on a roll. I so. wanted one of the other panelists to dive in on this one, but I'll-, I'll, I'll You go yeah. first. I mean, they, you know, it, again, I think people might be surprised a little bit with my answer on this. And I, and I heard John speak about this as well before. I, mean, I, I guess, you know, one of the, again, the debate, the, these debates are very interesting because I think at, at the heart of them is a, a debate about the freedom to do the best for your children, whether that's paying for extra private tutoring or paying fees to go to private schools. 
and balancing that against the ensuring that if you're from a disadvantaged background that you've got a fair chance in life and i think that we've passed a tipping point in that um that that, that, that freedom we allow uh, it, it is so dominant now that it that it means that those in disadvantaged backgrounds don't have any chance. Saying all that, I I don't think you can. Th you know, some people say why don't why not ban private schools? I don't think you can do that. I think people should be free to 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 invest in those in those if that's what they want to do. The problem is is that they are vehicles of intergenerational persistence. That's the opposite of mobility because they're only uh, accessed by people who can pay the fees. And they're, they're very good at what they do. You know, so one study we found uh, that 50% of leading people across a range of professions in the UK came from private schools. And that had held, that figure had held for about 50 years. So particularly in those debates about top end diversity, I think you, ha you have to, in my view, do more to promote those from the 93% well, uh, of state schools. And, and I think it's, for me, it's about, can I use that term leveling up rather than, leveling down but uh but yeah i'll i'll stop there because i think the other panelists might want to want to go as well. <laughs> if i may the the academic and non-academic opportunities on offer at many private schools but also some top state schools and yeah there's a lot of variety within the private school sector as well but those academic and non-academic opportunities allow their students to achieve better exam results to learn beyond the curriculum take part in a broader range of extracurricular activities such as sport, music and drama, develop an understanding of a broader range of careers, develop the employability skills necessary to secure a good job. All of these things you link into to social mobility, um, i.e. those that goes to, to these top schools um, are going to be at a much, uh, have a much bigger advantage in accessing the, the jobs market at, at the top level. So, um, could you abolish private schools? I don't think that's that's realistic. But we we need to acknowledge that it's um, it is a barrier to achieving more social mobility. And I think um, recognizing that someone from a a state school from a, a very disadvantaged background, where few people are getting top grades, uh, who achieves very good grades at A level, has probably um, achieved even more than someone who gets those same grades at a at a high performing. A private school and I think it's great that universities and indeed employers are using things like contextualized recruitment to and um, to address the inequalities of, of the education system sometimes. Thank you. Could I, we've just got time for one more question so um, I'm just going to fire this one in. It's from uh, Joe Ellard and Joe has asked how could universities aid the growth of social capital not just through traditional uh, work-based learning. And uh, Juja, you, this is something you've talked about. Maybe we can go to you first on this one. Yeah, I wish I had an easy answer to this question. Um, I think that there's a lot that can be done on a, on a social level, and we forget that universities aren't just academic institutions, but they're social institutions. And, and for a lot of people, it's where they build a network or where they consolidate their network. And just in terms of internal funding to social activities, but also putting programs in place that allow for, for relationship building across degree subjects, across years, so that people have access to a wide range of, of people at university, rather than sort of being siloed down a specific path um, and with a specific group of people. Um, but at the same time, so I, 
I did my undergraduate degree in the US. I can't really speak to how it works in the UK. Um, but there was also a lot of community building around what it meant to be first generation um, at a US university, specifically on my campus. And there's a lot of value to be added there as well. Um, and for people who, who can take comfort in being part of those communities, but also there being resource in being around people who have similar experiences to you. So I don't think it's an either or of like, everyone needs to integrate with each other and, and there should be no um, like community building around certain experiences. But at the same time, I think there needs to be a balance between the two. Thank you. Anyone else want to come in on this? I'm particularly interested to Lee, because you've talked a bit about this earlier on. Yeah, I, I think it is difficult. You know, how do you, I, I know very few programs I've seen that can just introduce social capital. So I think we're, we're sort of, um, yeah, early days in that. But I, I would just echo what Juju was saying, really. I just think we need to think much more about it in terms of both the workplace, actually, and, and universities, how we, in, and there are, there are some promising programs I've seen, but you really got to work hard to think about all those implicit things that are, are you know, it, it's all those intangibles really that, that give people advantage. And then as, 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 it's, as I said, not just the academic things, we, we, we think in general about half of outcomes in life are due to the non-academic things. I mean, we, we obsess about that, um, but yeah, but a, a real focus on those social issues as well. But no, I don't have any silver bullets on that, I'm afraid. <laughs> We need to come to uh, a close, but before we do that, we're gonna have another poll. Um, this is not about Trump and Biden, it's about social mobility. So we're gonna ask the same question that we asked at the beginning and see whether we've shifted our thinking at all over the, the last hour. So the question is, do you think a good education is the key to increasing social mobility? Yes or no? Let's see what's coming up. to peer around my camera to see this. So, ah, looks like we've had a bit of a shift here. So, uh, yeah. So to begin with, um, the answer, we had 64% said yes. Now it's that's gone down to 45. 11% uh, said no, that's gone up to 35. And unsure has drop from 25 to 19. So perhaps we are homing in on something important here, uh, clarifying our thinking. Thank you so much indeed for uh, joining us today. It's been a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Um, and thanks so much for, for coming on to uh, Dialogue and Debate with Cumberland Lodge. Thanks particularly for some wonderful questions from our audience, really, uh, really important questions there. If you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page on our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Just to say also that our webinars generally take place at 11 a.m. on the first Wednesday of each month. Sometimes we deviate that, but normally first Wednesday of the month at 11 o'clock. Just before I say goodbye, I'd like to highlight that, like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during the pandemic. If you've uh, enjoyed today's event, found it useful and would like to support our work, 
we'd be grateful if you consider making a small donation. And you can do so online via our Just Giving page, and we'll put the link up uh, immediately after this webinar. So thank you once again to our wonderful guests, John, Lee, Juja, and Caroline, and thank you all for taking part. Goodbye. <laughs>